Good morning, and thanks for having me as your pinch hit preacher this morning. And if you'd open your Bibles to Mark 3. Some apologies are in order. Yes, I was scheduled to preach next week in order. And since Sam got sick, he said, John, could you step in? And I got this notice last night at 7.30. I had done some preparation, so this is not going to be completely from the hip. And yet it's going to be out of order because Sam was going to preach the previous section. So we're jumping in. And yet, the way that the, the gospel writer Mark has written this is kind of like a docudrama with little scenes and clips. And so it, I think it'll be fine for us to jump to my passage, and then we'll have a flashback to what Sam will preach next week. So if you will turn to Mark 3, and let's read God's word. And my hope is that as I, uh, I'll go through the passage, we'll read the text, I'll try to run back through the text with some explanation, hoping that the, the, the Holy Spirit will bring to mind some things that are for us today. We're reading the mail of yesteryear, thousands of years old, and yet this is the eternal word of God, and it's, it's, it's good for us today. So, verses 7 through 21. Jesus withdrew from, with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, he came to, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to, those, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we know that this eternal word is powerful and able to transform, and we, we pray that that would happen this morning. I'd like to give you a roadmap of where I'd like to guide you in just explaining this text and this piece of the story. And if, if I could, I'm a retired teacher, so a 30 years career, mostly elementary, but I've taught third grade through eighth grade. And if you don't mind, I'll treat you like students, and I want to invite you to be Bible scholars, that we read the text, and sometimes we read commentaries. And if anyone has ever told you that, well, I only read the, the red letters that Jesus spoke himself, I would want to challenge you to get yourself a good... Uh, commentary Bible, a study Bible, and read everything. Because sometimes there are smarter people than us who've gone before us, and the commentary really helps. I rely on commentaries to prepare for a message because I don't know it all. I've really enjoyed comparing the different gospel accounts. Mark is Mr. Concise. Mark's gospel is like a docudrama. He's written it in such a way that there's immediacy. In fact, he uses the word immediately 12 times so far in the passage. So it's pretty amazing. Let me share with you the introduction. This is not a study Bible, but this is really helpful. And since I'm stepping in now, I've not preached from Mark, I'd like to kind of treat this as if we were staging this event for all eyes to see. I'm involved in theater right now. My wife and I are putting on a show. Here's the sales pitch. It's called Hatter's Daughter. It's going to be at the Performing Arts Center Thanksgiving weekend. If you like theater, come see that. And so since I've been involved in theater, and there are some theater... Uh, comrades here, I, I look at God's word differently. I'm a script writer, I'm a playwright, and when you are trying to create characters and make them come to life and have purposeful uh, actions on the stage, I look at God, the author of all things, of the cosmos. He's, he's spoken existence into reality, he's created people, and he's scripted them a part to play. And so we're looking into the gospel writer Mark's scripted account, this docudrama of these events. He's chosen to write it in a certain way. So I invite you to look at this through the eyes of a producer or a director to see these scenes and look at the motivation of the characters and then 
drop your jaw with awe and wonder what he can do with 12 common men. Here's the introduction to this gospel. The gospel of Mark emphasizes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus announced the kingdom of God, healed the sick, and died as ransom for sinners. In addition to Jesus, Mark features three main groups of people, the disciples, the crowds, the religious leaders, none of whom understood Jesus. When the time came for Jesus to go to the cross, the religious leaders arrested him, the disciples abandoned him, and the crowds jeered at him. Only when he died, alone on the cross, did a Roman centurion recognize that he was the Son of God. This is remarkably dramatic. All of the Gospels are essentially cosmic hero stories. Jesus is the great protagonist, the Son of God, who's on the scene to save the day. I call this the divine redemptive drama, where God has a plan for his creation and the stage is planet Earth. He's going to create people there. He's going to put Adam and Eve to a test in the garden. They will fail the test, and they will be in need of a redeemer that will be revealed in time. And so this great protagonist, Jesus, is going to show up. And then for the sake of drama, not for drama alone, because I I can't question God as the, the great playwright, but things are all going to be misunderstood. This Messiah is going to show up. He's prophesied and predicted, and he's going to show up, and the religious leaders, rather than welcome him, oh, thank goodness you've arrived. After that 400 years of prophetic silence, oh, now he's here. Everybody rejoice. Welcome to the capital city. Celebration, feasts. No, it was total rejection and then ultimately murder, betrayal and murder. How dramatic for this hero story to go this way. There are some things that I might uh, kind of uh, ask you to consider in staging, a lot of times the lighting brings our attention to certain things. So we can light the stage and, and then activity goes on over here. In some cases, the light might shine on Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, not, not in this particular passage. We have the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, Bethsaida, this, this region north of the capital city is pretty much where this scene takes place. So that would be like the stage lights are lit for this scene. And sometimes in theater, we want to feature particular characters or events, and we zoom in with the spotlight. So I might refer to that kind of lighting so that you would pay attention to that. Or a follow spot means where they're going. Then ultimately, I'm going to consider the house lights. In a show, after the show is over, the house lights come on so we can see each other. And we realize we're a part of the show. We've, We've participated in it as an audience but there's something for us to take home with us. So I'll be referring to those elements as I go through the passage. We've read through it once, and if I were producing this, I would look at, well, in theater, sometimes you sit down your characters and you have what's called table talk. You're playing this, this person's role, so you know, what motivates you? What are you doing in this part on the stage? What, what do you hope to accomplish as you interact with other characters? So I notice that there are, are characters in this cast, in our passage, and I'm going to take them out of order because I'm going to save the, the most important for the last. But I see our character, the main protagonist, Jesus. I see the crowd. It's called the great crowd here. I see the family at the very end. They think he's lost his mind. I see the presence of demons. I see the disciples, and then I see a select group of the disciples called the Twelve, who are appointed as apostles. Do you see all that with me? It's almost as if this this is so dramatic, somebody should put this onto the stage, or maybe in episodes and seasons. Has anybody done that? How many people have seen The Chosen? It's a remarkable piece of art, and so I recommend that as we go through the, the Gospel of Mark, check out that. Uh, it's just it's spectacular. So let's go back through, and let me, I, uh, what I'd like to do is point out a couple of observations about all the main characters, and then end with four observations for application, so you'll know where I'm going. Number one, Jesus, the protagonist, the hero. He is the eternal son of God. He's our savior. He is the accomplishing agent in the Trinity. So theologically, Jesus plays this role. In the Godhead of the Trinity, we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, different in in, uh, office, equal in essence and person. Jesus is the accomplishing agent. It's been said, the Father wills, the Son accomplishes, the Holy Spirit applies. 
And we're gonna see Jesus on the scene as God incarnate. He's come onto the stage of this time in Israel. We have a temple mount dedicated to God the Father. We have the expectant Messiah. All these prophesies about he, he will come. Moses mentioned him. Um, the, um, Isaiah prophesied about him. They knew that he would come as the offspring of David in the tribe of Judah. He would come from uh, Bethlehem, the city of David. All these things were predicted. So why is it that when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's largely ignored for 30 years? We know the Christmas story. Gabriel mentions things to Mary. And then we have this period of silence and expectation until Jesus launches his ministry at age 30. And the Gospel of Mark doesn't go over genealogy. It starts with John the Baptist, the herald of Christ, and his baptism. And then Jesus just goes on to shock us. He doesn't go down to the capital and talk with the, high, with the chief priests or the scribes. He doesn't go to the council in Jerusalem and talk to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He doesn't whoop it up with the dignitaries because he's the Messiah. He hangs out with fishermen after he's turned 30 years old. It's remarkable. I mention these things because as we consider the ex expectation of the crowds to the Messiah, Jesus was different than they expected. They were looking for a military king like David who would come in and throw off the yoke of Rome and then move uh, Israel into a, a place of national prominence. So our passage now moves on to the crowd. Jesus is going to shock us with things that are both upside down and inside out. He's not going to be that national hero that comes in and gets rid of the Romans. He's going to uh, forgive sins. He's going to heal those who are sick. He's going to meet with the lowly. He's going to call into ministry the common and the simple. So we have Jesus. You have a clear picture of the protagonist, and that, that would be a big role to play. Who can represent the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who comes with his redemptive plan? The crowd is the next bit of cast. And if I just jump back to, uh, in theater, a lot of times, and I, I'm a songwriter, so I have to write songs for my characters, and they're, they're what we call want songs. The character takes the stage, and they want to emote, and here's what I want, and I long for this, and I want to do that. It's called the I want song. And if you were going to write a song for all your characters, they may have the I want song. The crowd has wants, the disciples have wants, the family have wants, and I'm just gonna kind of tap into that a little bit. What does Jesus want? He wants to please his Father. This divine redemptive plan has been pre-established before the creation of the world. In fact, in Ephesians 1, it talks about you, believers, have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So Jesus has a plan to purchase a people for his Father's glory and to be with them in an eternal state. And he's on the scene to enact that plan, to accomplish that plan. His desire is to please the Father. He's going to say that throughout the Gospels. I only do the will of the Father, not to please myself. I came to serve as the Lord, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. So that's what Jesus wants, to purchase a people to the glory of his Father. He's in obedience to his Father. And what do the crowd people want? I, I wrote down, they want healing. You can heal? I got a problem. Please heal me. I'm hungry. I want food. I'm possessed. Get the demon out of me. So the crowd is very interested in healing, provision, freedom, and frankly, whatever's available. That's what crowds do. Sam has already talked about crowds in Scripture are often not depicted as this is, a, this is an enormous good time and everybody's on board and we stand in solidarity with you. No, the crowds are looky-loos. They're spectators many times. They come with a need, a desperate need, or a curiosity. And it doesn't always mean that the crowds are easy converts. In fact, far from the case. They'll say Hosanna one day and then crucify him the next. That's what crowds do. I think crowds are dangerous, frankly. Um, you know, um, sometimes anonymity brings out foolishness in us, and we do things that we wouldn't normally do because there's safety in numbers. The crowds are attracted to Jesus. Jesus is the rage. As he has preached and as he is healed, word gets around, this guy is something else, and they're flocking to see him. 
we first see him, if I jump over to, uh, you know, the Gospel of Luke, I think it is, it talks about, and, and I think the Chosen has depicted this scene well. So Jesus is preaching, and he backs up his preaching with miraculous powers. And then the crowds flock to him, and as he calls his first disciples, he needs a boat. There's these empty boats while the fishermen are cleaning their nets, and he steps into a boat and says, can I get away with this? And okay. And then so it's Simon Peter's boat, and they go out, and Jesus is preaching from a distance, and then he tells them how to fish. Now, Jesus is a rabbi. He's not a fisherman, and they don't think he's got the expertise to tell them how to do their job, and they're overwhelmed. He, he shows them his stuff. Well, cast your nets on this side of the the water and it, that, that net is filled to overflowing and the boat nearly sinks and they are in awe because he's preaching about this new kingdom and he's backing it up with miraculous power like there's something to this man the crowds are all flocking to see what he's going to do next so the, the crowds include those who marvel and those who are transformed and it, it only stands to reason that if you get healed you want to invite your friends. You need to come see this man. And then you're kind of swept along in, in, the, uh, in, in the atmosphere of, of healing. So we have the crowd at this scene, and it says in our text, they pressed around him. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Now, Jesus was so, his, his healing power was so great that they felt like he doesn't even have to touch me. I just have to maybe touch his cloak or jump at him. So I picture this scene where, it, like in football, if it's uh, fourth down on the goal line, getting across that goal line is just like you just pile over. I picture the needy wanting to just pile onto Jesus. If I can just touch him. There's a crowd between me and Jesus. I'm going to get a running start. You get enough people like that. What a crazy situation. Preceding our scene right here, is the story of the paralytic with his four friends. So these people have been known to go through the roof, right? Sam preached that pretty well. Just a crazy atmosphere. And if that has become the new normal, then we need to get to Jesus by any means. Nothing's going to stop me. So he's now making provision. Look, it's gotten so out of hand that we need to have an escape boat here, guys. Prepare a boat over there. And if the crowds go nuts, then we're going to get in the boat. It doesn't say what happens, but the fact that there was that preparation is interesting to me. So we have the crowd. We have Jesus, the protagonist. We have the crowds that are flocking to him. What are they going to do? And we always have this division. Are you for him? Are you against him? Are you neutral? And is, is it even possible to be neutral in the face of these miracles and this kind of teaching? Because he's just shaking it up. Jesus came to dismantle the status quo religious establishment. He's ushering in through his ministry a new covenant kingdom that is very different. He's going to expose the current religious hierarchy as corrupt and false teachers. They are not going to like that. The, the Pharisees don't really show themselves in this particular passage, but they have preceded. Let me just go back for a second. I'll steal a little bit from Sam's message. Sam was going to preach about Jesus intentionally healing on the Sabbath. It's one of those traditions where you do not work on the Sabbath, healing is work, therefore you're in violation of God's law, you're a sinner, you're a blasphemer, on and on it goes, and Jesus chooses to do things that defy the religious hierarchy. And look at verse 3-6, the Pharisees went out immediately, there it is, Mark again, immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is early in Jesus' ministry, and he already has death threats. And murder plots. And we even he's, he's, he's instigating an alliance between the Pharisees and the Herodians. And the Pharisees hated the Herodians. But now they're going to form an alliance of hatred to take our protagonist, the cosmic hero, out. This is no surprise to Jesus because he's the hero. So the crowds are there. Let me jump to the, uh, let's turn the spotlight now on the family. If we jump in our passage to verse 20. I'm saving the 12 for last. Then he went home. This is after choosing the 12. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again. So in our passage, we have these huge, crazy crowds, and then Jesus will escape to a mountain. He'll have a backup boat, and then he'll leave, and he'll go to a mountain, and he'll appoint his disciples, and then he'll come back down from the mountain, and he'll try to go home. 
And I think that this is the last time he will ever, I think he's going to be itinerant from this point on. The crowds will not leave him alone because he can't even get into the house to eat. They're going to come through his roof. They're going to throw themselves through the window just to touch him. They are so desperate. He will never get a moment's rest. He will always be on the run. He will be a man of sorrows with no place to lay his head. And he will continue to stir it up with the religious leaders so that there will always be a plot. There's a bounty on his head. And he's going to have to just manage that as he works his way toward Jerusalem and the, the, the cosmic event of his atonement. That's coming later. It's so cool to look at this picture in, uh, in Scripture and then we zoom out. We know the end of the story, right? So there are elements of suspense. Why is Jesus doing it this way? Well, we know later on. We know in the, in the Acts uh, what's, what's going to happen. We know from the epistles what's going to happen. But it's exciting to put ourselves here and then try to relate to the crowd and then try to relate to this next group of people, unclean spirits. So it says, he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. That's pretty remarkable. We see in the Gospels um, appearances, demonic forces that, that, that seem like no other time. We see some demons appearing in the New Testament in the Acts, but not like when the, when the Son of God is first on the scene. The demons are quaking and trembling as if light has, simply, has suddenly shown up in the cellar. I like to think of it this way. The, the demons are like cockroaches in a dark cellar. When I lived in Stockton, California, I'd walk out into the garage and all these little black things would go scurrying around. Cockroaches. So one night, this is kind of like a, a side story, but one night I decided to take some Oreo cookies and I crumbled them in the middle of the garage on the floor and I put masking tape face sticky side up in a square around the Oreo cookies. And then I went into mind my own business and then you know a couple hours later I went out there, turned on the lights and sure enough, they all run, all these twitching cockroaches on the tape. The demons are like that to me. The Son of God shows up on the scene and they're just twitching in the light, suddenly exposed. And these poor people that they are possessing are now running to Jesus. And they don't have the wherewithal to say, cast out the demons from me. They are the demons. The demons are them. They're, they have no self-control. And Jesus casts them out. What would you do if you'd been possessed and now suddenly were liberated? You might be tempted to follow this man around. Perhaps he is the Messiah. So the demons know Jesus, but they do not worship him. There is a point of application right here. To know something and believe it doesn't mean that it's salvific, that it saves. So a lot of people know of Jesus. You need to trust him and obey him. You need to follow him. You need to be a disciple of Jesus for salvation. And the demons are our bad example. Sure, they believe in him. They call him the son of God. They even have the correct uh, identification. But they are not saved and they are not trusted. They are enemies of, of, of the kingdom. So we see these people, we see these spiritual creatures, these demons possessing people. Um, it would be interesting to go into demonology. I can't do that. I don't know enough about them. But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't just zap them. I, I stomped on the cockroaches in my garage. got rid of them. Jesus casts them out, but we don't know what he does. He doesn't Wouldn't that be nice? One less demon, one less demon. They seem to be free to do their work. Later on, they're going to be thrown in an abyss and then the lake of fire. But for now, they're just twitching and convulsing because Jesus is on the scene. Isn't that dramatic? <laughs> he's just casting them out, and then he's going to empower his disciples to, to do the same things. Okay, now we move to this other category in our cast of disciples. It's fascinating. So as I flip through the Gospels, how many were in the boat? How many were there at first? Well, we, we know that disciples is a broader category. A disciple is a learner. What did the disciples want? I'm going to just deal with disciples in general, and then I'll go to disciples in particular, and then we'll talk about the 12 who are then called apostles. A disciple is a learner. A follower, some were called to follow and some followed who were not called, but were not rejected, were not cast off. Jesus let the crowds follow him. That's why he couldn't eat. So we had, the, we had people who were super needy. We had people who were super interested. 
Is this the Messiah? What's he going to do next? I have a couple passages. You can turn there if you like, or you can just listen to me read them. But as I look at, okay, so where do we find disciples in the scriptures that are different than the 12? I find in John chapter 6. So the scene here is that Jesus has fed 5,000. He's showing this miraculous uh, ability, and the crowds have been fed. So there's teaching, there's provision, and now he's the rage because maybe he'll feed us again. So the crowds are following him, and then Jesus corrects their misunderstanding about what the Messiah will do. The Messiah won't just simply come to be a feeder or a healer. He will forgive sins because he is God himself. So after the feeding, they will come to him, and he's going to give this new teaching about, I am the bread of heaven, the bread that comes down, the manna from heaven. And he's going to say, you need to, uh, to, be, to abide in me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples, read that again, after this, many of his disciples, who are they? Are they the 12? Simon Peter, James, John, Thaddeus, Philip? Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, the 12 are different than these many disciples. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. This, by the way, is before the Last Supper when the Gospels talk about Satan going into Judas as if that was an event that happened later. Um, Jesus is calling Judas the devil well before the Last Supper. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Okay, my point here is that we'll deal with the twelve a little bit later in a few moments, but right here we have obviously a group of other disciples. Then in Luke 8, write this down if you like, check it out or let me read it to you. Soon afterward, and the scene that this follows is that a woman comes to Jesus, a forgiven woman. We don't know exactly what her sin was, but she comes with expensive ointment and she sees Jesus and she falls at his feet and she pours out this ointment on his feet and wipes his feet with her tears. And Judas is incensed. That, ex- that expensive ointment could have been used for something else. Ends up that, Jesus, uh, that, that Judas was concerned about expensive ointment because he was always taking money out of the, the money bag. But after this scene, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the 12 are with him. So we see the 12 there. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, many others. That just struck me as, we can't underestimate the crowd that Jesus had, nor the number of women who were supporters and disciples, who sat at his feet and heard his teaching. They were different than the 12, but they were there. Christianity is a religion that is so open and welcoming, not to demons, but any human who would believe and trust Jesus as Lord. And then who provided uh, for them out of their means. So we have a lot of supporters. While Jesus has no place to lay his head, he's got a lot of places to stay and a lot of supporters who will cook and provide for these 12 dudes as they travel. One more, Luke 10. After this, I can't remember what the the circumstance was in Luke 10. After some kind of a teaching, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others. I think this is after the teaching about you got to take up your cross to follow me. Um, 72 others. So we have these different categories of disciples. We have gobs of women. We have a group that followed him until he gave them a difficult teaching. Now, do you think our hero made a mistake? He flubbed up. Man, I just lost a lot of followers. Or was he culling and refining them by his teaching? The discipleship with Jesus means absolute trust. Watch me work. Know my deity. And then trust me at my word. And sometimes I'm going to be confusing. The disciples never quite got it till the resurrection. We have to be sympathetic with them. He spoke in parables so that many would not understand, including the disciples. When he spoke about his own impending death, they refused to believe it. 
So they were always left off balance, and yet he's investing in them and showing them things as he draws them along, including women and many other disciples. By the way, the 72 others seem to have the ability to heal and cast out demons, too. They were so when we talk about the 12 and the particular anointing and the power of the 12, Jesus seemed to be generous with the, the 72 that he sent out. We can't say that of all disciples, but he was, he was amazing in, in his uh, discipleship ministry. So we have disciples in general, and now we move to the disciples in particular, the apostles. I'll read that again. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Um, if I had a slide of my message, it would be called Preacher Feature. Because what, really, this particular passage is featuring spotlight on his teaching preaching team. These are fishermen, though. I mean, some of you are, are thinking, so as I disclose to you, okay, I'm a teacher. I, I'm somewhat used to talking to people. I look at my curriculum. I have to teach my students, so I'm somewhat familiar with that and comfortable. Some of you would, would, would not want to do this. I don't want to talk in front of people. Well, how do you think these fishermen, <laughs> they spend their time with fish, other fishermen and fish, and Jesus is going to transform these common guys into preachers who will change the world. We are part of the Gentile movement. We're not Jews. We're not in Jerusalem. Here we are meeting and talking about this because of the effectiveness of their ministry. Jesus can take common guys. He can take men who fish and turn them into fishers of men, and they can change the world and turn it upside down. And he's still working that way. So that's a great encouragement. He, uh, he went up on a mountain Let's look at Jesus' strategy. He goes up, um, when it's, uh, if you jump back to verse 7, there's this attack on him, now they're plotting his death. What does Jesus do? He withdraws to the lake, and then the crowds come. And now he's got to get away from the crowds. After he's casting out demons, he withdraws to the mountain. We don't know which mountain. Could have been the same mount that he gave the Sermon on the Mount at. It was one of the mountains around uh, Lake of Galilee. Um, Jesus was a mountain man, and his disciples were mountain men, and they did a lot in mountains. I'm going to make a point about that later. But Jesus goes up on the mountain and communes with his Father and prays all night. That's not in this passage, but it's in Luke, and it might be in, in Matthew. Which is interesting. Jesus, who is doing the will of the Father, he's talking to his Father in real time then about his ministry. The Father has given his seal of approval you know, when the heavens were torn open at his baptism, the Father is blessing the Son in this role to be the Redeemer on the scene of, of the earth. And now Jesus is talking with the Father about this ministry plan. And apparently they're having this agreement about it's time to call the Twelve. And that's what Jesus is going to do. Um, he called to him those whom he desired. This is interesting to me. There are crowds of disciples, many of them faithful. Jesus is going to be somewhat exclusive here. He's going to choose 12 men for his preaching team. And then, I'll just add this, he's going to have within that team groups of men and leadership elements within those groups. And Peter is going to be like the key guy. And then there's going to be James and John. So, and, and, and he's going to do special things with three. So Jesus is not an egalitarian to where everybody gets equal treatment. He's going to choose 12, and then of those 12, he's going to not just simply identify giftings and say, okay, well, Peter, you're, you're pretty bold, audacious. I'm going to choose you as my leader. Jesus chooses people because he is the creator. We find in the book of John that nothing that has been created was created apart from him. He is the accomplishing agent in the cosmos. Jesus is the creator. He knows everything about physics Energy, matter, human dynamics, human personalities, dispositions. And he chooses Peter to, to transform Peter into a, a preaching member. It's not that, it, it's just remarkable to me what God can do with common people. There are no limitations to that. He chooses them, he desired, and they obey. And then he appointed them so that they might go out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. 
Now, so preaching is one thing, and miraculous authority is another thing. But in the same way that Jesus has demonstrated his authority, when the Pharisees would say, well, no one but, but God can forgive sins, and no one but God can, could heal that man. And then Jesus heals the man and proves that he is the son, uh, he, he's the son of God. And so as his preachers, he's going to empower them with the ability to cast out. Now we have an, a list of names. These are the 12. In particular, there are lists in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Mark, and Acts. John doesn't give us the same kind of a list. And they, uh, let me read them again. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Altheus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I think I would fail a test, a quiz, John named the disciples. I've memorized them before, and then I forget. I just cannot keep track. Peter, James, and John, and Judas, I can remember those. You know why? Because they're always listed. Peter's always first. It's James and John. John writes the gospel. John writes letters. Why didn't John get next to Peter? It's just the way that they're listed. They're listed by the gospel writers for the reason of showing their importance in leadership. And then Judas is always listed last to show that he was part of the 12, and the Lord invested in him fully knowing what Judas would do and loving him nonetheless. Judas plays his part. This is where it gets a little bit strange um, for me to think of God just through the lens of being an author who not only can he speak things into existence, and there they are, boom, light, let there be light, there was light. Uh, Let there be Satan. So God created Satan. Satan's a created being. The angels are created beings. Simon is created. Jesus is not created. So things are spoken into existence, and they're under the control of, of, of God. Um, and so this whole plan of him, um, Jesus also, it's interesting how he speaks names to these people. Did you notice some of the nicknames? Um, to whom he gave the name Boanerges. So a couple of the guys are hotheads. They want to fry. Lord, they're not listening to your preaching. They should be fried. In the same way that I thought the the demons should be eradicated. Um, And then Simon is given the name Peter, like you are rock solid. Interesting that Jesus has these relationships with these people, and he speaks new names to them, to know them by and train them by. So we have this list of people, The first four seem to be fishermen. Simon owns a boat. Simon's brother, Andrew, is a partner. John and James are partners in Simon's fishing industry. Um, They all fish on the Lake of Galilee. So you'd, you'd think that, well, is the Lord modeling for us this pattern of take the gospel to friends and family? That would seem to be the case. We also find later on that, I forget exactly which one, but Philip and Nathaniel, one of them tells the other, and then they come. So there's this business of, you know who Jesus is, you commend him to others, and you bring your friends and they meet Jesus. What a wonderful model. It'd be nice if that was the formula model. But then, it's not just family and friends, people who are already inside. Uh, John and Andrew apparently were already disciples of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. So it seems like a cozy deal. All your friends from the country, you know, not the capital city, but around Galilee, fishermen and farmers and your country friends, you're going to be the new agents in the kingdom, the new covenant. And then he invites Levi, the tax collector, and he also invites a zealot. Now, interesting, a zealot hates the Romans and hates anyone who's complicit with the Romans. So Simon the zealot would probably want to kill Levi, the tax collector, later we know as Matthew. What a wild group of men Jesus is assembling for his preaching team. So he, he collects them all together. We don't know much about their personality. We do know this. None of them were scribes. None of them were priests. We don't know their tribal lineage. They didn't come with a resume. So it's not that he was exclusively, oh, 
tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Judah. Um, we just don't know much about them other than they were ordinary guys. Judas apparently was the only outsider. And isn't that interesting for the sake of drama? That you have a cozy team and then you have an outsider and he's going to play the role of betrayer. And when I say play the role, it's not as if this is a piece of myth or fiction. This is history. So a lot of times we look at the, um, the script that God has provided in these Gospels and it is scripture. So this is what God has ordained in history. And so as we look into the story, there are things that we can pull out for ourselves today. Okay, so we have 12 guys, not 13, not 11. Do you get a picture of who they are? And go back and watch The Chosen. I have a couple questions to deal with. Why 12? Why not 10? Is there something symbolic about the number 12? In my brain, okay, well, there's 12 months in a year. Jesus is being highly symbolic. A lot of times artists and writers, they'll, they'll embed symbolism in their work. They'll foreshadow things and, you know, here's this. And I'm not going to get into numerology, but it is interesting that there are 12 that were chosen. And they're called down to 12. Is it because there are 12 months in a year? Is it because there are 12 inches in a ruler? Is it because there are 12 eggs in a carton? How about 12 semitones in an octave? How about this? How about there are 12 new leaders of the kingdom to replace the 12 old leaders of the kingdom that has got corrupt? Let me make the case here. If that's new to you, the idea that Jesus is not just whipping up a group, any old group, he's whipping up a group of preachers who will take over the job of preaching in his absence. We know that Jesus is going to spend three years in ministry, he's going to march into Jerusalem, he's going to be hailed as the king, they're going to turn on him within a week, they're going to tell, yell to be crucified, they're going to kill their king. And they're going to leave, he's going to leave these 12 preachers to carry on the kingdom work. That is remarkable. Common guys, can they pull it off? This is Luke 22. After the Last Supper and this crazy dispute about who's going to be the greatest, why are these guys arguing about who's going to be the greatest? Greatest what? Fisherman? Greatest preacher? Preaching what? About the kingdom. These guys were on to something. They, they didn't completely understand it, but they knew that Jesus the Messiah was the king of a new kingdom. And to be invited to follow him did not just uh, mean, oh, I want to increase my ability to heal or cast out demons. I want to be in leadership in the new kingdom. So who's going to be greatest? Who's going to sit on the right and the left? I want you to see that. In Luke 22, 28 through uh, 30, verse 28, Jesus says to them, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There it is. This is not numerology. Jesus is you know, intentionally choosing 12 replacements that will continue the kingdom in purity. Not the old, corrupt, obsolete kingdom, but the new. This is like the new wine in an old wineskin. And the disciples are new wine agents. Ephesians 2.20, another bit of proof. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, talking to believers. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the foundation of the apostles. These disciples were moved into the position of being anointed apostles, empowered to represent the kingdom, kind of like dignitaries that would carry on the work of the kingdom in Jesus' absence. One more, Revelation 21, 12. It had a great, and this is the New Jerusalem, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes and of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the name were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I don't know about you, but this is just, this is remarkable stuff. 
that Jesus has, has created this new kingdom, and he's got these 12 agents that are honored through eternity. Yes, the 12 tribes are honored because that was God's choice for Israel, his chosen people. But Israel came to a, a, a place where Israel rejected their king, and they were replaced by the apostles, common Jewish men. Okay, I think I've covered the bases of this scene. So we start with a great crowd, and we see Jesus on a mountain calling out of the crowd people who have been faithful. And then he appoints them with power to be apostles. And we're going to read through the rest of the gospel about what these men will do. They will be sent out. They will exercise that power. They'll come back and report and all kinds of things. As I've said earlier, they will not completely get it because they can't get it until Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is given to them in power. And then suddenly all the things that Jesus taught comes back. So think of it this way. Pentecost, and they go out and do further acts. And then 30 to 40 years later, these guys and their associates will pen these gospel hero stories so that we can read it thousands of years later. This is all part of the package. You're going to preach. You're going to leave a record of my kingdom work. And we expect that king to return. So the work of discipleship goes on. So that's the scene. Now I'm going to turn the house lights on. We've had like the scene lights, and then we've had the spotlights. House lights come on. What, what are we to do with this information as we, we look at the scriptures and the marvelous work of Jesus preparing his preaching team? I have a couple things, observations. These are for me. This is not Holy Scripture. I could be way off here, but I, uh, I just find these remarkable. Embedded in our text here is we have the Holy God. Jesus can walk on water. When Jesus was uh, first preached, and then he talks about the Gentiles coming into the kingdom, and they hate him. They take him to a cliff, and they want to stone him. He just walks away. Why would he be concerned about crowds jumping on him? Why would this man of power be concerned? And yet he tells the disciples, prepare a boat for me. What can we get out of that? It's not, it's not bad to prepare. Jesus was modeling. Everything that Jesus did was a model and an example for us. Now, we can't be the Son of God. We're not omniscient and omnipotent. But he was demonstrating to them that even in ministry, careful preparation is a wise thing to do. When he sends out the 72, they precede him. So they're preaching the gospel, and he is the king showing up. So a lot of times, preparation is a good thing. That's why, one of the reasons why I read the introduction from this Bible, I would like for you to be scholars of the scriptures. I would like for you to have daily reading plans that you feed on this because this is transformative. And when you feed on it, it nourishes your soul and prepares you for ministry, that you would be equipped to be like those disciples, now enabled and empowered to go out and tell your story of faith as you've interacted with the eternal word of God. So practical stuff, don't underestimate the importance of practical preparation. And you can decide, should you prepare when you're going to have children? I mean, think about it. Many people want to have a gender reveal party and they've decorated the room and they buy baby clothes. If you don't make preparation for what's coming, you're like people who don't have oil for their lamps and you get left out. So preparation is point number one observation. You can write that down. And for those of you who have the, 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 the journals, the Mark journals, I'll come around and inspect where you've, whether you've written any notes. <laughs> That's the old teacher in me. Here's another one. Point number two, observation. Guard your alliances. Now, once again, um, your, your brain might interact with the text in a different way than mine. Guard your alliances. Don't be yoked with unbelievers, such as demons. Why did Jesus tell them to be silent? We have other passages where he tells the leper, don't talk about me. The leper, how can I not talk about you? Look at this. My skin is clean. All other leopards, lepers, you know, get healed. You just can't keep that under a bushel basket. And Jesus knew it, even though the text says that because of his popularity, Jesus had to go to remote places where the crowds wouldn't follow him. He, he needed to get some space with his team. But with, we, don't see that, uh, we don't see that contravened with demons. He tells them to shut up and don't talk about me. Why is that? Because they can't be trusted. What, if they advertised Jesus' ministry, what would their purpose be? Demons do have, when they sing the I Want song, it's basically, I want to be like my father and champion Satan. I want to destroy. 
I want to murder. I want to lie. I'm for anarchy. We cannot be governed. I mean, what, the demons are evil agents, and they encourage other people to do evil. The next passage, when, uh, if, you, if you take a peek in 322, Jesus is going to be accused by the Pharisees of being in alliance with the devil. Jesus knows that already, and so he does not allow the appearance of an alliance with demonic forces to even exist. He just casts them out and shuts them up. I don't know why he didn't fry them. So the Pharisees are going to accuse him of being of the devil, and Jesus gives them no ammunition. Application to us, be careful who you make alliances with. There's a place for co-belligerence where uh, if you believe in uh, religious freedom, stand with other people who also believe in religious freedom, but be very careful about who you are yoked with because at some point, if you're for Christ and someone's against Christ, there's going to be conflict. You cannot be yoked with unbelievers. Paul writes about that in terms of idolatry in the New Testament. Okay, here's one. Take this one or leave it. I find in this text, and, we, and, and Sam actually mentioned this as we, we talked about this in advance. He said, there are a lot of mountains in here. Yes. I think there's a mountain ministry here for us today. Jesus was a mountain man. Consider this. Appreciate mountains in scripture and then in the same way that we can look at what was he doing with the 12 disciples what was he doing with mountains i better hurry up i just you know, realized when do you pick up your kids like five minutes ago okay mountain ministry consider god reveals himself mount sinai right jesus reveals himself in his glory transfiguration mount horeb which apparently is nearly ten thousand feet and uh, so he invites his friend up there there's something about mountains. And even in Revelation, we have John taken up to a high mountain to look at the new Jerusalem coming down to earth. Um, I think Philippi should start a mountain climbing and upreach ministry. And uh, talk to me later about that. If you want to do it, we should climb them. Mount McLaughlin is close by. Yes. Okay, number four, and finally, the application. Go and make disciples. We joined this group of select men whose ministry was so effective that now we enter into the Great Commission. Now, we are not apostles, and we can't call ourselves apostles. We can call ourselves disciples and disciple-makers, and should. And we've been equipped with the Word of God. We've been equipped with the Spirit of God who dwells in us and illuminates the Scriptures to us. And we've been equipped with the fellowship of the church, so there's accountability, so we don't go off the rails and get into weird, false teachings. There's a certain safety that as we teach and study together, we can be effective in making disciples. So I would encourage you to appreciate what Jesus did in training his preachers and the thousands-year-old effective ministry they initiated and the fact that you now, as a disciple of Christ, can make disciples to further that kingdom here on earth now until he returns. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your amazing word. We, we thank you for the marvelous nature of this, this dramatic event with you showing your stuff. You're the great hero the, the cosmic protagonist that came to save a people and did so successfully. And Lord, now we know, we, we trust you that you are reigning and ruling in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and you will return in glory and triumph to bring your people to yourself and initiate an eternal state where you will rule this king. It's a marvelous thing. Lord, help us to walk faithfully now. Help us to be ambitious that we might be disciple makers, we ask in the name of Jesus.